0: Welcome back to Documentary First, an inside look at a first-time filmmaker's journey. I'm your host, Jason Rugg, filling in for Josh Lindsay, who's out sick today, and I'm joined, as always, by our first-time filmmaker herself, Christian Taylor. How are you doing, hey, Christian? Hey,
1: Jason. I'm good. Thank you so much for being, a, you know, our backup quarterback in this situation. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, happy to do it.
1: We have a special guest here today.
0: Yeah, we're joined again by George Chompa who was with us last week.
1: Yeah, last week, George was here and he gave us such an incredible story. Uh, We just knew we had to have him back. We ended off at the Battle of the Bulge. So after a film update, uh, we're going to hear some more from George. George, we're really happy to have you here.
0: Thank you. Yeah, Christian, So let's dive into this film update. I, I want to hear what's going on.
1: Oh, my gosh. It's been such an exciting, crazy week. I don't even know where to begin. Um, so we did, um, you know, sort of in our newsletter release that we had signed a deal with Delta, and that's just been super exciting among our donors. And we are thrilled about that. The They have started fulfilling the distribution deliverables that Delta needs in order to get us on those planes by August, so that's great. And then I got news yesterday, which you are hearing it here first. We have had our official release in Canada. So yesterday, The Girl Who Wore Freedom was added to the Shaw Cable Company video-on-demand platform. So if you're listening and you live in Canada, go and check out The Girl Who Wore Freedom on your TV sets you can uh, watch it for 6.99 dollars in HD. That's Canadian dollars. Uh, you can also go on the Cineplex store. If you have a subscription to the Cineplex store, it's kind of like iTunes. Um, we can be found there as well uh, for $5.99. So it's a little cheaper if you go to the Cineplex store than it is on Shaw Cable Company. Um, but uh, congratulations, Canada. You are now able to watch The Girl Who Wore Freedom. Well, that's um, incredible. Yeah, I know. It's super exciting. Um, and then we're going to be sharing that on social media in the next few days. And our soft launch for uh, the United States is coming up in a few days as well. We're going to do pre sales on iTunes. So, um, you know, everybody just needs to be looking out on our social media for that. So you'll know when you can share with your friends and tell them to go buy a copy of The Girl Who Were Freedom. So that was great. Um, Yesterday, I was on WGN TV. Did you see that?
0: So I saw the Twitter update just a little bit too late. So I, I was like, you were like, I'm on in five. And it was like three hours ago for me. And I was oh. like, no. <laughs> I would have, totally would have pulled that up. I can't believe I missed it.
1: Oh, well, that's okay. Actually, I missed it too. I don't know what happened. I was watching WGN online and I think I must have had an old cached version. It was replaying old news. So oh. I missed it. But fortunately they sent out a link and they're carrying the interview online on WGN. So there is links on Twitter in, uh, and on Facebook if you, and even LinkedIn, if you want to catch that interview, it's basically talking about our GI Film Festival uh, debut, which is tonight, of course, when everybody hears this, it'll be a week late. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> And by next week, we will know we are um, a finalist in the best documentary category. And we're a finalist in the first time filmmaker category. And that award ceremony is on Sunday. So by next week we'll know. Um, So uh, that has just been uh, an incredibly exciting thing. The last thing I have to tell you is I I'm leaving this weekend to go meet a new director of photography. And I'm starting to interview for uh, positions for the Brave Dutch. And I'm super excited about that because I realized um, what I'm going to do is as the Girl Who Wore Freedom begins to wind down and the next project, the Brave Dutch, begins to wind up, we are going to close documentary first and start documentary second. So uh, (laughs) I I haven't told you that yet, Jason, but now, you know,
0: is that officially what it's going to be called documentary second? (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, we might as well go with it. Right. So uh, that's what I've been thinking and dreaming about in regards to that. And uh, we'll just kind of see how that goes. Also new news on the Patreon front. I think we're going to be ready to launch our Patreon in the next week or two. And I'm so excited about this. We've now done the video. We've got all the tiers lined up. The, um, the the levels and the you know rewards for those tiers are super fun. So I think people will like those a lot. So keep an eye out on our social media for when we launch our Patreon page.
2: Well, that's a question. What's the second documentary about?
1: (laughs) Thank you, George. That's a a wonderful question. So it's called called? it's called The Brave Dutch. And so it is the story of the Dutch resistance and how they helped our downed American airmen, British airmen, Canadian airmen, uh, as well as the Jews and the underwater boys. Um, Our particular story focuses or begins with John Lau, who was um, actually from my hometown of Laurel, Mississippi, and was shot down over occupied Holland in April of 1944. So John uh, was kept alive for 11 months by the Dutch resistance. And when he got back to Paris, he wrote uh, a little book, an homage to the brave Dutch people. So that is what the next documentary is about.
0: Mm, Sounds good
1: yeah so any questions jason
0: no i think i'm just excited to to see what this next week brings like i'm excited to hear the update from next week because it sounds like there's a lot of things that are going to be happening like Patreon and, and award ceremonies and things within the next little bit here so I'm excited to see yeah. uh, what next week brings.
1: And our release and yeah. <laughs> you know if people are listening don't forget I'm going to be in Greenville South Carolina on D Day which is June 6th we've got the Reedy Reels Film Festival coming up I'm going to be there with David Chapman and a few other people from our team then we're going to drive to Beaufort South Carolina beautiful Beaufort with the people of the Beaufort Film Society and we are going to be doing Doing a D-Day event. It's a fundraising event for the Beaufort Film Society. So if you are anywhere in the area, come and join us. You can stay at the Beaufort Inn. It's a wonderful little hotel there uh, and you can join us for those events um, on D-Day. We've got new D-Day merchandise in our store. Some specially designed t-shirts that uh, honor everything that went on on D-Day. It's the 77th anniversary. So go and check out our shop. And uh, yeah, so we do. We got a lot of stuff coming up in the next two weeks.
2: You're super busy.
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> I am. I am super busy, but I have time to talk to you today, George Shampa. I had so much fun listening to your stories last week and you got us all the way to Battle of the Bulge. And then we just had to leave and I've been on the edge of my seat to find out I was told that the Battle of the Bulge, was the it was like the coldest winter in I don't know how long when you got there. And I always heard stories that you guys were not well supplied in terms of things that keep you warm. I mean, how did you, I mean, stay warm during that time?
2: My girlfriend. No, i was just kidding you. Uh, I hope I don't duplicate anything I talked about before, but Uh, The Battle of Valves, let me just tell you this. In case you don't know, that was the largest land battle the US Army ever fought. And you're right, it was like 30 degrees below zero. It was a cold, cold winter and we didn't have the clothing that we should have. Uh, And I heard that there were 40,000 soldiers that had uh, frostbitten feet. So, yeah, it was uh that was that battle went on from december sixteenth uh nineteen forty four to january twenty fifth nineteen forty five So as bad as the invasion was, Normandy invasion, and it was bad i I really don't know how many were killed there because you, you hear different reports. And I think it's around 8,000 that were, were killed. But I don't know why, but they don't have the exact figures. But I can tell you about the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, my company is 607 Graves Registration Company that um, got to the area in September uh, of 1944. And we were bivouacked in the area called Homborg, H O M B O U R G, Homborg, which is right next to the little village of Henri Chapelle. So at Homborg, where we had a temporary cemetery, before we left there, we had 17,300 American heroes buried there. It was on a farm. They got the uh, land from the farmers. Uh, to have, have the temporary cemetery there. There's a lot of pictures of the temporary cemetery uh, with initially uh, just markers, and then after us came another grazer extraction company that uh, put wood crosses, and uh, you had a dog tag nailed on a wood cross, one on a on a body, uh, but. Um, the um, when we first got there, we were in a meadow and we dug in and we had you know, temporary latrine. <laughs> I remember that latrine. <laughs> you know why? latrine. You know what a latrine is?
1: I know what a latrine is, but why would it be memorable?
2: <laughs> because of the kind of a latrine that it was, and uh, it was really weird.
1: Well and, do yeah, tell well, now I'm
2: curious. Used for toilet paper, newspaper. But you know, there was a shortage of toilet paper during this pandemic. People were going crazy, you know. <laughs> and uh it kind of reminded me uh, of us uh during the Battle of the Bulge. But uh, the uh the cemetery there, the permanent Andre Chappelle Cemetery is called Henri Chapelle, because that's the next village. Enborg is very, very small. Henri Chapelle has a little church and a couple of stores. It's a very, very small village. So Henri, H-E-N-R-I, Chapelle, Uh that permanent cemetery came to be in 1947, two years after the war. So I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go back to September of 44. The weather was rain, 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 cold, cold, cold. Trucks were getting stuck in the mud, having to pull them out with winches, you know, you like tie on a tree that you could find and pull yourself out of a hole that way. But it was miserable. And then it started snowing. And uh, like everybody can tell you that lived there is still alive. It was the coldest winter they ever saw. So in the meadow, I had my foxhole. And uh, I remember uh, we were only there, I think, for maybe two or three days, very short time. And we thought we better move the heck out of there because we didn't have any overhead shelter, any protection from the air. And so we moved into a adjacent woods. <clears throat> and so the day after we moved, they bombed our temporary cemetery. The craters, the craters are still there. And one of the big craters is right next to a farmhouse. And the Pooters lived in that farmhouse. Is a family of. Well, there wasn't a family of 11 kids at that time, but eventually there were 11 kids. And uh, one of them was, was 15 years old, and he was the oldest, <clears throat> and then uh, that was Joseph. And uh, he had t- two younger brothers, but I'll go into that in a bit. But the uh, Joseph, at 15, I was 19. And so he and another kid, from another village, larger, much larger village, uh, uh, called Obel, A U B L, used to come around where bodies were being buried. And we used to tell them, get the hell out of here, kid. And they remember those words, even 50 years later, they remember those words, get the hell out of here, kid. We so anyway, uh, Joseph, one day I said, Hey, Joseph, uh, can you bring me some milk? Oh, sure. So the next day, <clears throat> I'm in my, this is in a, still in the meadow, by the way, Right immediately before we got in, into the wooded area, uh, there is a keg of milk right next to my foxhole. And I looked at it, there's all this hay in there. It's warm milk.
1: <laughs>
2: and it's Joseph. <laughs> you know, don't you have any cold milk? You know, I don't want this kind of milk. But anyway, never forget that. He never forgot that. He, he has died since, uh, uh, he, he died uh, about uh, three years ago, I think. But I saw him often after that, the years that we went back, saw him and his uh, couple of brothers and sisters. And we saw a lot of the family, but the mother and father, we used to visit a lot while we were there. And uh, I, rec- I remember the buzz bombs because the Germans were launching the, the V1 buzz bomb. It looks like a miniature airplane loaded with explosives. And they had thousands of those they were launching and they were just hitting wherever. And uh, in fact, I almost got hit by one of them. Uh, I have a piece of shrapnel. It ended up right at my feet. Big piece of shrapnel. I took took it home. But anyway.
1: um, Can I just ask you a couple of questions before we go on? So the story that you're telling here is remarkable. And it reminds me very much of the stories that I heard in France. Here we are in Belgium. Mm -hmm. And these American GIs and the people living there sort of find a way to help each other out. And... I'm wondering how did you communicate with them? It, it, it uh, cause in France, it was challenging. How did you communicate? Get me some milk.
2: That's interesting. Uh, there is ways of communicating if you have to, you know, we, we used to go in the home of, of his parents, uh, Mr. And Mrs. Pooters and, uh, and sit and talk with them sometimes. And, uh, I don't know. I don't know, sign language. It's a good question. I don't know how to, how, to, how we communicated. Um, much later in the army of occupation. I, I know how I communicated. I learned a little German through a, a girl there, and she knew learned a little English. But we both did pretty well. I mean, I learned how to interpret the song You Are My Sunshine in, in German. Hmm. And uh and uh <laughs> I'm laughing because I went to Hawaii with American Airlines and Gary Sinise with a bunch of uh, uh Pearl Harbor veterans. And uh after we got there, I got to meet the captain and the co-captain, uh Jim uh Tim Knoo and uh Nancy Miller as a female co-pilot.
1: You and have he, a remarkable amazing memory to remember names <laughs>
2: oh, yeah just sometimes but you know what uh, i'm still friends with them but what made me think of that and see i get off on tangents all the time you got you gotta bear with me on that And my wife gets a bad day for getting, getting off on tangents but i say left whenever i talk to people none of them fall asleep kind of reminds me of a kissing Henry Kissinger's speech one time when he said, if I bore you, it's your fault. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, you are not you are not boring me, and I found your tangents interesting. So keep going.
2: All right. So anyway, Joseph uh I said, hit hit come to the cemetery and would have to kick him away from there because as I said, when we left there, we had 173. 17,300 but this is before we had 17,300 This early on we're talking about december we got strafed by a german plane and luckily nobody got hit we wonder why that happened on christmas day but anyway i woke up one day from my foxhole and i couldn't straighten up i'm only at that point i was 19 just early on 19 years old so I went on sick call and got in a truck and went to the hospital. And uh, the first thing that happened there was they had me see a psychologist. And he asked me how I like the Union Army. <laughs> and then he, he started asking me a bunch of stupid questions. And I just got pissed off at him and walked out. So the, I couldn't stand up when I went there you know, erect, but the next day I was pretty good because, you know, we were sleeping on the ground. You know, we we had, I was sleeping with another guy, Tex Malutin, Tex was 24 years old when I was 19 and he was a character and he was always smoking cigars that he'd get them home. And uh, and so and it, somehow or another, he and others got their hands on cognac and so he'd be drinking cognac and smoking a cigar. And pretty, pretty soon I started smoking his cigars. And pretty soon, unknowing, unknowingly, he was trying to get me to quit smoking his cigars. So when I wasn't looking, he'd flip his ashes in my drink. And uh, never bothered me, but he told me that later. Next <laughs> died years, years ago from Texas, and he was a, really a character. He was always laughing on the outside and crying on the inside mm. and, uh, everybody thought he was looking for a section eight because he'd walk around sometimes and, if you vote for me for mayor of this town, I promise you we'll have four houses on wheels you
1: know? <laughs> yeah so let cool. me. Let me ask you a practical question. And I'm sorry, this is just the way my mind works. But I'm thinking about here you are in September. It's raining. You've dug this foxhole. There are two of you in the foxhole. And I'm still wondering the practical answers to these questions. A, how hard is it to dig a foxhole? B, how do two men sleep in a foxhole? C, it's raining and wet. How can you even sleep? when it's so cold and wet and you two people are stuck in a hole.
2: Okay, let me tell you about that. We built little enclosures. We found wood around there and we built them. I had a little enclosure with my friend Tex. He was a little guy, like I was. And it was just, had an opening, just big enough that you could go in sideways. In there, we picked up a little, hot stove that we got in the town there. And we had that in there. And then where we slept, uh, we combined our shelter halves, you know, a shelter half, each soldier has a shelter half, and you put the two halves together, you build a tent. Oh. But we we never built the tent there. But what we did is we put the two shelters down on the ground, and then we each had a blanket. And so then we had, the two blankets to put over us. And so then in the middle of the night, somebody would come in and wake me up and say, it's your turn to go on guard duty. So I would go out there in a freezing cold and I'd stand against the uh, outhouse we had there, with my back against it with my rifle and looking this way and looking that, banging my feet together to stay try to stay warm. I have to stand there for an hour, my turn to be on guard for one hour. And during that time, I gotta tell you this, I looked up in the sky and there is a rocket going straight up with flames coming from the back. That was a V2. The Germans had the, the V2 bombs that look, that had a long fuselage in, in the wings. And those things were going over to England. And when they hit in a square block, everybody get killed from the concussion. Now we never had any of those hit us, but we had plenty of buzz bombs. One of us, one, oh, it was funny because you talk about foxholes. Uh, you just happened to have a foxhole right there where three of us were standing. And here we heard, we heard this buzz bomb. And you know, the buzz bombs, they fly high and you hear them You hear the drone and then all of a sudden the drone stops and then they come straight down or they glide. Sometimes you don't even hear a drone because some of them come in at a low altitude and, and crash and they, they're killing guys that were on piss call that were a bit way behind the lines. And uh, uh, the one that almost hit us in our wooded area all of a sudden we're standing by this foxhole that I was telling you about and we hear it coming uh, because it's at low altitude and so we all dove in the foxhole it was funny this guy his name was Huff he was a pretty heavy guy SS Huff he dove in first and two of us dove in on top of him and uh, that was hilarious but (laughs) <laughs> the bug bomb hit right at the edge of our our uh, area, our trees, and exploded, and luckily most of the, the shrap- shrapnel went forward, but some of it came backwards. That was this piece from flying down and landed. If it had hit me in the chest, it would have killed me, or the head, but it landed at my feet. It didn't even didn't touch me. It just landed a chunk of shrapnel about this big wow
1: landed
2: at my feet it was all round and curly you know sharp edges but anyway
1: well can i ask you some more questions i'm so sorry but curious minds want to know so what's amazing to me and i've talked to my son hunter about this there is something very interesting about military humor and so what caught me is when you're saying, you know, your friend dove in and you guys dove in on top of him and you said it was kind of funny. And here I am listening to this terrible, treacherous situation that you were able to find humor in. And I am supposing that, you know, you're stuck in this situation. You have to find ways to cope. And I mean, is that right?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah my friend, Tex, he found ways to court, because he was always saying these crazy things, you know. Uh, but um, what was I gonna say? Uh, oh, yeah, the reason why it was funny, you have to see huff, what he looks like, and he was washing out of his helmet. Okay, you know, you know, we use the helmets for whore for everything.
1: Bath. I've heard for everything.
2: I call them poor bass. So you use it for, for everything. So that's what he was doing at the time. And you got to see him, just imagine this fat guy, huff, everybody used to kill him all the time. Uh, And uh, it was funny because he got in there first and we all jumped on top top of him. (laughs) So yeah, it was funny. If if one of us got killed, it wouldn't be very funny, would it? Right. But the aftermath was, was funny. So anyway, And then one
1: last question. Um, So you, you talked about, you got to this place where this temporary area was, and then you had, you had this foxhole and it sounds like you spent a lot of time making this foxhole. sounds like, you know, you made your home away from home kind of. So I'm assuming that took a lot of digging out, but how long would you stay in this area? And would you, you would have to go over and make another foxhole and start all over. How much yeah, but, time in each area?
2: Well, that's a very interesting question. Thank you. Because we didn't stay. Well, we we did stay in that area a long time. Because what happened is the Battle of the Boats started in December. Okay, so we were there September, October, November, December, through all the rain and the snow and the cold and In that
1: one area, in that one area you didn't follow? Yeah,
2: Yeah. and and when we were there, we used to go, that, that was our home away from home, and that's where we used to go into the battlefields to pick up the bodies during the Battle of the Bulge, okay, and now the bodies were frozen, unlike the bodies at Normandy that the stench was there, I told you about, that got into our clothing and we're spitting all the time, dry mouths. And with that stench in our clothing that we slept in, the in foxhole, and, and compared to that now, uh, we, we were in this area that was our home for a while. In fact, we were there for five, four months before we went into Germany. And, and then, the, like I said, we had, uh, we had uh, 17,300 buried there when, when we left to go to Germany. That's when we left to go to Germany. Now, the temporary cemeteries were not built until 1947, two years after the war. So all of these bodies that were first of all they had to give give this land back to the farmers. You know they had cows on that land before we took it over, and then after we gave it back. But but uh, I did a film uh, called They Will Never Forget, and uh, I take uh, uh, no, it wasn't that film. Excuse me, it was a second film called Memories of France. Now well, what the hell film was it? Anyway. <laughs> right now, the middle block. Which film was it? where it, it had to be the first or second film, because that's it's the only got time. five,
1: there. by the way. Those of you people uh, that are listening,
2: teachers. Well, but but uh, uh, I had a, a group of teachers and walking over the temporary cemetery where the crosses are now all gone and the bodies are removed because now it's it's like in in two thousand and seven or eight when I went back to do documentaries. So that's when I took teachers. So in that film, you can see, I'm showing teachers where the bodies, we used to lay the bodies right at the fringe of the woods there uh, be, as they're being processed to be buried. And so that, uh, uh, you know, I can envision that, that picture now, taking them there and showing them uh, where the bodies were.
1: Now, I have another question. So I just saw the movie The Battle of the Bulge. I'd never seen it before, and I, but I had read about Malmedy, and I'm wondering, did you guys bury the people? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Malmedy—that's where the Germans slaughtered a bunch of our prisoners that they took. And our company—I didn't get involved in that, but our company had to uh, pick up those bodies and take him back to Henri Chapelle Temper Cemetery. And so, yeah, that was... A, and then another thing that happened, uh, there's a lot of things I'm trying to think of what happened there, but that's one of the things that happened. I've been back there several times, by the way. There's a museum right there across from the field where these guys were all slaughtered. And in fact, after the war, the uh, War Department came to my house, scared my mother to death, looking for me. Because they had the Nuremberg trials going on, and they wanted to know what condition these bodies were in that we picked up, so I had wow. to tell them tell them that. And so, uh, uh, there's a lot of things that happened while we were there. Uh, one of the little boys that used to come, that would chase him away, and I saw him 50 years later. By the way, for the first time, I'll get into that in a minute. But but uh, uh, he had he had a sister. And the mother and father. And I knew the sister. I'll get into that in a little while. But uh because I kept in touch with her after the wars, I studied French in, in college. And so I could write, I can write pretty good in French and, and I can speak it, you know, so they can understand me. It's hard for me to understand what they're saying because like us, when we're talking to them, we talk fast like this. It's hard for them to understand what we say. So you must, We'll speak slowly. on, Slowly, slowly. Anyway, getting back to, to Belgium. On Christmas Day, I told you about the strafing. Another thing that was happening around Christmas, there were German Germans dressed in our uniforms, spikes. <gasps> and- I, I
1: saw that in the Battle of the Bulge. I was wondering if that was really true.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. We we had a challenge every day. A lot of the stuff we used was baseball talk that we all knew the baseball players who were in the World series and all, you know, and then we knew about comics like Bondi, Dagwood, you don't know about them, but we do. Yes, knew. I
1: do. Yes, oh, I man. do.
2: Okay, so so we used to challenge everybody with questions because you didn't know if they're a GI or not. And so three of these guys were caught right there in our area and they were executed. Wow. And, again uh i wasn't involved in execution and i don't even know who was but other gis were involved in executing them according to the geneva conference anyone caught in your uniform you know can be killed right away i mean that, what that, kind that,
1: of questions would you ask people if you don't mind me asking oh
2: yeah like like uh who was babe Ruth? or then we'd ask him like uh, questions like the guys that were active playing that I remember St. Louis had a great team so w- would ask who is this guy you know or or um, uh, you haven't heard of uh, uh Blondie
1: yeah the cartoon
2: yeah that's what you'd ask them and they didn't uh, well who was uh, her husband Dagwood Dagwood so there were a lot of questions if they flunk the first question you give them another question you know but, I didn't get to question these guys, mm. but I mean, the ones who were killed, I didn't get to question them and I didn't see them. And we were going to reenact that in my first film, but my cinematographer, he, the area had all changed where they were executed, but he was with his camera and he's walking with this big uh, berm. I thought he was going to fall down to photograph the area where these guys were killed. Then we had pictures of them. You know, there's pictures of of that. And uh, I don't know who who did the photography, but there are pictures of those guys getting executed.
1: Mm. And
2: and there was a young lady there who thought, because they were in our uniforms, they thought that our own guys were being executed. Oh. She was 18 years old. and. we didn't find her. We didn't even look for her because my cinematographer, he's German descent, W-N-S-S-A-C-A. Uh and uh, a very nice guy, by the way. And he, he has a company in Kansas called Outpost Worldwide. If you ever want to check his website, Outpost Worldwide. Every Veterans Day, he calls me up. Mm. Oh, <laughs> The only, only guy that calls me every day on Veterans Day, and it's the last Veterans Day. Three gay guys right here in my neighborhood took me to lunch. Palm uh, you know, Springs is a lot of gay guys, you know, and very few <laughs> girls. The gals don't like to come here. All right.
1: Me. Well, we're going Unless off. We're going off on a tangent, so I'm going to bring you back. So, okay. all right. So, you spent a lot of months then. What
2: some funny things? And here, here they are. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, so or I'd love to hear the funny things, but all I was saying is I'm taking you back. You're in Belgium, you're there for like four months. The Battle of the Bulge is going on. They're having to bring the people back. You were talking about uh the bodies being frozen, so it wasn't as bad as it was in Normandy. Uh, but what happened after you were there? What happened next? The stench
2: wasn't as bad. The stench as wasn't, you, yeah. Well, right here behind me, you can't you can't see it, uh, but, uh, well, anyway, uh, I was gonna just say, uh, one of the most important uh, commendations, if that's what you wanna call it, you, were, you ever see a guy wearing a, a gold wreath on the sleeve down here by the wrist, it's like a wreath. That is a meritorious service award. And we got that award, Our our whole company of 124 enlisted men in offices we we got that award because when the you know there was a standstill when we first got there in september it looked like the germans were pretty much defeated not like it, it, it after normandy with paris looked like the war was over but the germans that's the, the battle of the buzz that's their breakthrough coming back from germany after they had with, withdrawn. Now in the forest, we come back, which is called the Battle of Buzz, because it's an encirclement. And a lot of our divisions withdrew for better position. We had to stay there with the medics. Medics and Drazer administration had to stay there. And we had, we could have been encircled. They couldn't come around behind us and we had been in, in the bulge. So, Yeah, so that battle, you know, I I did a um, in my first film. I talked about War with eleven, which was eleven black soldiers who were in the artillery. There weren't too many in there. These guys, artillery, and so they withdrew, and they only had one rifle and no food, and it was a cold, cold winter. And we we're right on the board of wherewith is a little village right on the border of Belgium and Germany. And they found themselves in this little village. And uh, uh, the the family there uh took them in and got them warmed and fed, and some snitch turned them in, mm-hmm. and so here comes the SS guys, and they took these guys out in the cold. Had them sit down in the cold, and I didn't know what to do with them. So they marched them in front of their vehicles. They brutalized these guys, eleven guys, oh. and they threw them in a ditch, and they were covered with snow. The farmer there, uh, uh, he put a little wood cross in that area, which was there a long time. Finally, the monument for those eleven. Uh, soldiers and there was a, a teacher there. Uh, she died a long time ago, but uh, she was in our film and she's talking about these eleven black soldiers who who were killed. Uh, we we buried those guys in our temporary cemetery, but uh, seven of them went home. They were sent back in a casket like the others to the family where they want them buried in any cemetery at no cost. And uh, the other four are Henri Chappelle. And uh, every year they have a ceremony there. They have, I met a couple of black generals and people from the administration at the time that, that came there. So the ceremonies that go on there every year in September for these, 11 soldiers, so I did, I covered that because what we did we went back and we saw the lady that lived in a house at the time she was 18 years old and she tells us in German because. And we're, we're with a lot of people were German uh, sympathizers and others were not, and so you didn't know who your friend was and who wasn't because somebody turned them into the SS anyway. uh. We interviewed her, and, and in my film, it's uh, we have subtitles, and she was, when we interviewed her, she was the same age as I was, and I was 81 when well, I did my first film called Lesson is Priceless. Well, the freedom... name
1: of your first film is The Lesson is Priceless? Yeah.
2: yeah, it's prefaced by Let Freedom Ring, The Lesson is Priceless, because we had four young history teachers that I took. The one... Um, uh, three of them were were young ladies and one was a young man and uh, they had the opportunity to talk to people who had lost their freedom and uh, and then they do they have they show that film to their kids and they're, they're these are history teachers by the way they show their kids every year the different kids that film and I go there and talk to the kids and so
1: so let me ask you real quick, if somebody is listening to this and they want to go and watch your movie, Let Freedom Ring, The Lesson is Priceless, where can they find that movie right now?
2: Well, my website is being reconstructed, but I still think they can get there. Uh, because The reason it's being reconstructed is because now I'm selling my films uh, to past supporters for $15 and no uh, cost for mailing or handling. And that's coming, the film is just being reconstructed, but they might be able to see a part of it. They could, they, they could buy it there. They could go to letfreedomringforall.org. That's letfreedomringforall.org. F-O-R, uh, or they can send me a, an email, george at letfreedomringforall.org. Uh, Great, and, thank you. And anyway, we covered that with this lady told us the whole story. And then a couple of years later, Hollywood got involved, and these guys did a story on it. And in their trailer, they said, for the first time, this story is being told. And so I got a hold of the director, and I said, wait a minute. It's nice what you're doing, but it's not the first time this story. Oh, he says, I don't know who you are. I'm going to talk to my attorney, blah, blah, blah. Well, Nothing ever came of it, you know, got dropped. But they did a recreation of this. And my friends in Belgium that have the Remember Museum, that's a good website to go to, the Remember Museum, 1939, 1945. But the Remember Museum is also on my website, too. But they're terrific people. And they have a museum that's like no other because it's very personalized. the, the guy, the man, Marcel, is Marcel and Matilda, and Matilda's younger than he is. He he was a bachelor until he met her. Uh, he was a body of the thunder guy. What happened there is when the Battle of the Bums started, all these guys from the first division that were bivouacked on their grounds at that farm, the farmhouse, they left a lot of stuff there. So he used a lot of this stuff for a little museum in his house an attachment, like a big garage to his house. Now he's got a big museum there and wonderful things there. And he's very mechanical. First of all, there's a flagpole American flag. There's a Sherman tank that re- rebuilt, that was left there by our troops at the end of the war. All of us, that's how all these reenactors get all of our stuff. Because we that's left right. there. You
1: there know, There's so much stuff we left there that reenactors yeah. in every country have yeah. picked up and yeah. taken care of.
2: And some guys made a lot of money, you know, reselling stuff. But anyway, it's another story. But uh, anyway, uh, that's that's a that tells you exactly. This lady tells you exactly what happened there, and uh, and so eventually a monument got put there. And I mentioned it earlier. I've met black generals that come there and other people. Uh, and it's always really cold. So September is cold. And, and they, they they do that uh, uh, so, in, memory, in memory of these soldiers that were, were killed.
1: I appreciate you telling that story, because honestly, as I, I've never heard it. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners haven't either. So thank you for telling us that story. Um, you know, I think everybody should go and look at George's website and try to find his films, order him from him, email him. Uh, he's got five of them. And George, um, six, you know, of them, six, six of them, six of them. Well, so
2: we've done in Normandy, as you know, in 2019,
1: I'm forgetting that one. That's right. We were there together. Um, exactly. so you guys can go to his website, let freedom ring and you'll see all of his work there. And, um, you know, it's, it's important work for everybody to watch. And George, we want to talk to you, you know, I think we're going to have to have you come back because we're still not out of Battle of the Bulge. And, and I am wondering, like, when did you leave uh, this temporary cemetery? And what happened after that? Now, we only have probably about eight more minutes left. Okay,
2: Um, let let me talk fast. We left, we left there in in February to go to Germany. Our last temporary, we had 17 temporary cemeteries throughout France, Belgium, and Germany. So when we left there and went into Germany, we ended up in Eisenach, Germany, which is about a hundred miles from Berlin. And had temporary cemetery there. When the war ended on May 8th, 1945. Yeah. When the war ended, uh, I celebrated with two bottles of wine, one red, one white. But what happened is they, We had a disinterred a cemetery at Eisenach and had had to handle the remains and put the remains, first identify them to make sure you're identifying them with a cross, uh, the dog tag on the the temporary cross and dog tag on the body. And then he had to put in in boxes and ship to Holland and Belgium uh, to be put uh, in other temporary cemeteries. And they, they weren't put in caskets until two years after the war when the permanent cemeteries were built. And uh, they were put in lined caskets, the remains, bones, and the people wow. who did that were the natives who lived there, the civilians who lived there, who were paid to do that. And, uh, and so uh, the next kid had the prerogative of having The remains of their level sent back to the U.S. at no cost to them any cemetery they wanted or remained there. Now, excuse me, what remained there is 40 percent of those who were killed because the other 60 percent returned home. So when you see a a permanent cemetery over there like Normandy with about almost 10,000 graves, that only represents 40 percent of what was there. Right. Like Henri Chapelle was 17,300, we left, and then there were more bodies buried there after we left. And so of all of those bodies, the 17,300 plus, 40% of them are buried in caskets in the new Henri Chapelle beautiful cemetery. Mm-hmm. And those cemeteries over there are beautiful, all of them better than the ones here Uh, by far, because they're all white marble, imported from Italy. And what's on those crosses and stars of David? Date of birth? No.
1: (laughs) Date of death.
2: Date of death, which is approximated that I know. And I learned that 50 years later when I went back to Normandy for the first time and saw that there was no date of birth. I think we talked about this before. Uh, That upset me because people visiting the cemetery have no idea who the soldier was. How old was he? Was he married? Did he have any kids or anything? You don't know nothing. But you know what? The people over there, many of the people are discovering that information. Many of them have websites. And in Holland, they're fantastic. In Holland, there's 8,300 Americans buried in that Margaraton Cemetery. And every one of those graves has been adopted. And the pillars with names of the missing in action, every one of those has been adopted long ago. And in many cases who adopted it has been handed down to the next generation who who goes there from time to time with flowers. And and they they don't have to do anything maintaining it, you know, work-wise. I mean, we have people doing that over there that are paid to do it. And uh, every cemetery that, Permanent cemetery built by the American Battle Monuments Commission, who maintains them. They have a supervisor and an assistant supervisor who live at each cemetery. So, well taken job. Uh, and if, if I had been killed, that's where I would want to be buried. Except my mother would have my remains come home. I'm sure you know.
1: Sure. Anyway,
2: more time but, than we have.
1: Well, we're we're almost out. But um, I mean, seriously, we are going to have. It. Can you come back next week? I think so. Because I still want to find out uh, after the war, I want to know, you know, where you were from like February to May. And then I know for seven months you stayed in Germany after that. And I haven't heard a lot about, you know, what that was like. So Well,
2: well, I can tell you some stuff there that you might think is funny. Yeah. Uh, And uh, tell you about my girlfriend that I had that was on a flying trapeze. There in Germany, I can tell you about my Jeep that I had illegally, and I can tell you about following her all over Germany, in places like, like Heidelberg and Heilbronn and Karlsruhe and Stuttgart, and taking her home to, uh, to, to Frankfurt and getting caught by the MPs there. Okay. all right, stop there. right
1: there. That Thank is, her. that is enough of teas for our audience, for them to come back next week. Uh, next week when we come back, everybody, we're gonna talk to George about the end of the war, where he was uh, you know, at the very end, what he did during the sustainment period, And if we have time, we'll talk to him about his life post-war. If we don't have time, we're going to have him come back the following week. Because as I know you know, listening to George is such an honor and a treasure. I don't want to rush through these stories. And I know our audience listening to these, you are teaching us so many new things, George. And it is very, very rare for anybody to sit down and listen to a World War II soldier who can tell to this detail what they remember. So we just appreciate you so much sharing these stories with us. And we thank you so much for making time and coming back. It's you're an amazing person. And you know, I'm going to be
2: 96 on June 16th.
1: It's unbelievable.
2: I'm going to tell you how I escaped being court-martialed because I had a Jeep illegally for seven months. Okay.
0: (laughs)
1: Yes. I mean, we're going to have a great, I can't wait till next week because I mean, Jason, what do you think? Yeah, I'm,
0: I'm really looking forward to hearing that story. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Jason,
1: let me ask you, you're a young guy, you know, you probably haven't had a lot of World War II history. What is it like listening to George tell his stories?
0: Well, it's, it's amazing because I, I grew up with my, my grandparents were both born in the 30s. You know, my, my grandparents who like really talked about the war a lot were both born in the mid thirties. And so, you know, they remember Pearl Harbor, they remember all these events. And I remember being a kid listening to them talk about it. And just from them, you know, they were kids when, when they went through it. And so it's amazing to hear someone who lived through the events, not hearing about them just as the news, but actually was there. And, and it just brings a whole new gravity to, you know, my, my, you know, my, my grandmother lost uh, a cousin, uh, went down to Lexington and, you know, just hearing these stories from someone who lived it is, is absolutely incredible. And so George, I just, I want to thank you so much for, for coming on today and and last week and hopefully next week to just tell us about this.
2: Just quickly, my late wife. Uh, who died in 1981, uh, and had the two children by her. Uh, She and my kids never heard any of these stories. My kids now, my daughter's 51. She has two kids, one little autistic girl and and a son, 12 and 15. And I have a son who's gay. And uh, they live in Colorado. And they've never heard these stories. Hmm. Now, my wife is... That I'm married to now, you know, married Dottie uh, in 1991. It's 10 years after my wife died because I, I raised my kids for 10 years. And uh, that's, I'm most proud of that than anything because my daughter was 11 and my son was 10. and So I'll let you go with that. I know my time's up and I don't want to overdo it. So we'll see you next week.
1: Yeah, we are so blessed by you, George. And you know, if you're listening to this, and you have uh, enjoyed these stories of George's as much as I have, I would love for you to write me Christian at Normandy stories and just tell me uh, what it's meant to you listening to George's stories. I want to read some of these to George next week. So uh, shoot me a note, Christian at Normandy Stories, and let me know uh, what you think about these stories. Um, also, could you leave us a, a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else you listen to podcasts? We we could really use some, some reviews for our podcast. So um, anyway, Jason, I'm going to let you take us out. Uh, please make sure to visit the girly World Freedom.com. We are still taking donations. There's a donate button there. And um, we really appreciate it. Those go to our operating costs. And eventually I hope to get enough supporters so I can pay Jason for showing up every week. (laughs) So yeah, Jason, I'm turning it over to you.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you for listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell and you can be the one
1: to tell it. Yes, you can. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Documentary First. We really appreciate your partnership with us. We can't do any of this without you. So thank you so much for listening, for donating, and for following along on our journey. If you are able to make a donation this week, we would really appreciate it. We are supported by donors who give us $100 or less, so anything helps. Also, if you're able to share the news about The Girl Who Wore Freedom with your friends and family, please do that on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or email. And sign up for our newsletter at com. Please go to thegirlwhoworefreedom.com slash donate to make a donation today.